Hey, I'm Aldwin. And I'm Jason. And this is the Ready Play Tennis Podcast. New balls, please. Why I didn't get excuse me? Can you talk louder so everyone can hear you asking me about my drugs? I mean, if we had Hawkeye, you would be so freaking embarrassed right now. Well, how come they can say whatever they want to me? Oh, it's old talent. That don't work. I just sit on the couch. I don't want to look like I am I going to be his boyfriend. Ready? Play. Welcome to the Ready Play Tennis Podcast. I'm Jason. And I'm Aldwin. And we are here. And we are queer. Again, and every day, (laughs) all day. All day, every day, bringing you the queerness that you crave for. Yeah. And the realness. Oh my God. That's a little... A little plug for Canada's Drag Race, which I'm sure you're also watching, like me. Yeah, thank goodness those lip syncs are getting much better. Yeah. Like, the first couple of episodes were horrible. Yeah, they are definitely getting better, like the one with Priyanka. We need to keep her out of the bottom, too. Yeah, Priyanka's the star. She's going to win. But maybe... Sorry. Yeah, maybe she should stay there, because her lip syncs are awesome. She's amazing. I mean... Anyway, we could go on and on about how Tainomi was, like, the favorite to going in because of her reputation, but Priyanka just stole the show. She's stealing. It, she continues to steal the show. Exactly. And as our listeners know, we continue to steal the show for them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, speaking of stealing the show, we want to steal a little bit of your time to talk about our own tennis game. And... You know, the theme of this episode, I think, will be a little bit around mental health and mental wellness and, you know, struggles with the game and within the sport. So we thought, why not talk a little bit about our own struggles? I think for us, getting back into the game has been a bit, you know, challenging for for perhaps both of us. I've had a few injuries. You've been trying to work on a few things We've obviously been in this COVID period um, where we don't get to play competitively. All of our GLTA tournaments are uh, are gone. The tournaments that people had hoped to continue, like Cincinnati and Indianapolis, have all since been canceled because people across the border can't get their shit together. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, we wanted to talk a little bit about our own game and a little bit of what we're challenged by for ourselves and how we're trying to work through that. Jason is a very democratic speaker. (laughs) Like if you guys don't, if you honestly don't know Jason by now, he doesn't really like, he likes to present the facts in a way that's like non um, confrontational. But the reason why this particular topic is so sensitive to me is because Jason and I have been playing at Supreme and, you know, shout out to Alistair and the team. They've done a fantastic job on the reopening of it. And as you guys all know, I've been working so diligently on my one-handed forehand. I've been playing two hands for the past couple of years. I played one-handed as a kid. And, you know, you just get a, get to a point in your tennis playing where you want to level up. And I made the decision to go one-handed. 
and Jason and I played at Supreme the last couple of times, and I'm not even kidding you. Well, Jason won all three matches. That's, for me, honestly, not a shocker because Jason is an excellent tennis player and has his shit together. And when he talks about our struggles, he really is talking about my struggles. <laughs> no I... offense. He should, he should just, honest, just be honest about it and be like, <laughs> he is very calm and very cool and very collected on the court. It's not to deny the fact that Jason has his own internal struggles, but like I manifest my struggles outwardly and it manifested itself the last time we played, which was what, two days ago? Yes. Yes, two days correct. ago and I cried I'm not even kidding guys I cried after our practice match and I told him I was like I felt I felt so stupid I'm like why am I crying after losing a practice match to my best friend who we've who with whom I've played at this point probably a hundred plus matches together for sure you know but it is a good theme for today's episode because it is um, a running thread in all of the topics we will cover. But I, anyway, the struggle and the crying came as a result of practicing something over and over and over again. And I hope someone out there can empathize with me. But you, you practice it and you practice it well. And some days it works. And then some days it just disappears. And... This particular thing that I'm struggling with is my one-handed forehand. And, you know, I spoke to my sister about it afterward. I was like, honestly, I, I kind of felt really stupid. And I'm, I wasn't sobbing, but I was definitely emotional. I was definitely crying a bit. And my sister kind of helped me put it into context. And she was like, listen, you love tennis. You're passionate about the sport. You could be crying about anything else that you're passionate about. And it's a completely acceptable an honest emotion to have, especially when you put so much time into it. And so when she when she put it in that context, it made me feel better because I generally am not a person that likes to be super vulnerable to people. Um, I've gotten better at, at it over the years, but you know, Jason's my best friend. I, I did feel stupid, but I, I don't feel stupid now having cried in front of him because he knows, he understands, he's my doubles partner. He's seen my struggles. He's seen me play my best. He's seen me play my worst. And anyway, so that's my little spiel. Yeah, and I think, you know, why you got so emotional about it is because you have been playing a whole lot more and you have been, you've been playing sometimes four hours a day and going to the court and like working on it and knowing in those practice sessions with people who, are smart enough I guess not to play matches <laughs> and just hit that you have felt confident and you have felt good with the stroke and then you play a match with me and you start off in the warm-up well and you start off the match well and then something happens yeah you know and so I think about players like Alizé Cornet and Putin Seva and even the GOAT Roger Federer like they've all cried on court and it's because they care so much but I mean I think and I was you know I was kind of anticipating that we were going to talk about this but Jason has if you play Jason Jason is like Steffi and I mentioned about the I mentioned this in a previous podcast Jason could be losing actually no I'm going to take that back most times you can't tell whether Jason is winning or losing. And in that respect, he's very much like Steffi. 
you know, you and that is very unnerving for a player like me because the way I play tennis is the way that I live my life. I am very emotional. Um, I talk about my feelings. Um, I'm very open and transparent with most things. And so I'm open and transparent with how I feel on the court. And that's and I've learned and am learning that that's not like a winning formula for me. Anyway, in, in short, I really respect and I give lots of kudos to Jason because, you know, not only did he come from a place where he couldn't fucking hit a forehand <laughs> to save his goddamn life, he couldn't. And now and now all he does is hit forehand winners. And even when he's losing, he manages to find a way to get back. So bro, I'm going to give him a, li- a clap, clap. A little clap, clap. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that happened in our last match, right? <laughs> It happened in the last match, and honestly, it happens in like ninety nine point nine percent of matches where I'm I'm leading against him. I think it happened in two of our last three matches where you were up in one of the sets, and I was able to come back. Yeah, I was up five two in the second match, and then I was up four one in the third match, and no no lead is secure when you're playing him. Like, you can't even take a breath. <laughs> I, I told him. It's, like, mentally exhausting. I, I have to use every goddamn brain cell in my mind to, like, keep a lead and to and to win a set. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to give you credit because we did talk about this. The fact that you haven't succumbed to your own internal pressure to go back to your two-handed forehand is, <laughs> I think, a testament to your desire to make that shot better and I think as we discussed before tennis is something we hate and we hate and then we love and then we hate it some more but it's (laughs) it's the thing that keeps us coming back and you were my inspiration in the last match to come out and work on the shot that I've struggled with which is my one-handed backhand and not to just revert to my slice which has become a weapon because I that's the only shot on the backhand side that I was comfortable hitting so I it sort of developed indirectly into a weapon because it was the only thing that I would hit but I feel like uh, like you I would like to commit myself to hitting a better backhand and I think both of us need to commit to hitting a better serves oh my god let's not even talk about that <laughs> on, on the on the whole backhand tip Yes, Jason's backhand is like my forehand. Both of us are trying to work on this shot that we've never actually really hit before. So when you play Jason, who already has like a multi-dimensional game, can really hit the forehand again wherever he the fuck he wants, and then he starts having confidence on a backhand that he's never goddamn hit before and screams a winner past you, I literally would look back at the tarp and be like, I'm going to just take this racket and bash my brains in because it's like it's it's frustrating it's so frustrating but like he said in the moment i was feeling so down but i came back on the court the next day i'm like i still want to play somewhere yeah that's it so i think so. what we had committed to do and we'll have to see how we stick to that is that for the next few times that we're play we're just going to work on uh pl- work on the strokes slash you know forehand for you backhand for me that we're struggling with and work on our serves and then re-engage with our coach which 
probably sounds like a good idea, uh, especially now that you've got your racket back from him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. We're going to call you Appreci- soon to uh, hook up our two-hour lessons again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, segueing, we had some fan some fan i'm talking like we have tons of fans we had a listener interact with us and uh ask that we talk a little bit about robin soderling Mm -hmm. we love robin soderling because early on in our podcast journey he uh engaged a little bit with our ig which Mm -hmm. was exciting through his coaching page um which is rs tennis stands for yes. Robin Soderling um, mm-hmm. and recently he did an interview for the ATP tour um, and participated in Tennis United interview with our boy Pospisil and the spunky Bethy Ma- Bethany <laughs> Bethy <laughs> we're, we're just call it we're just gonna call her Bethy <laughs> uh, to talk a little bit about anxiety and mental health and something that he um, lived with for nine years but really just decided to share recently on his instagram yeah you know i admittedly didn't know very much about robin soderling before um he came out with this statement on his own personal mental health i knew i really truly only knew him to be the last guy to beat rafa at the french open and i was actually surprised in in the research for this episode to find out he made two consecutive French Open finals. He did. He made the final in 2009 and in 2010. And he lost to Federer in both? Or? He lost, no, Federer has only won one FO. He lost to Nadal oh. in the final in 20, oh. 2010. And the other final? He lost to Federer in 2009. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear him say that he struggled with anxiety. And, you know, we know how he sort of disappeared from the tour back in 2011. He won his last tournament in his home country uh, before he sort of went away. Um, and the anxiety for him, I think, came on from what I read in the article very suddenly. And he also dealt with mononucleosis, which um, was sort of what he shared pup more publicly about um, why he was away from the tour uh, at the mm-hmm. time. And the article was just so uh, interesting in terms of offering a perspective on mental health for athletes specifically because he talked about how he had engaged with other athletes who in other sports who had um, also been dealing with and living with mental health and anxiety challenges and how they left their respective sports as a result of that but didn't say that publicly they would have been dealing with perhaps other injuries that were niggling them and then use that as an excuse to say that they had walked away and never sort of publicly said they were dealing with that, which speaks to um, the broader stigma that exists for people as they deal with mental health. Yeah. Um, I What I found find really interesting, and it's something I think we've all heard before when it comes to talking about being at the top of your respective sport, you hear a lot of commentators talk about athletes and their 
pathway to being at the top, it's easier to become number one than it is to stay number one. And that's what Robin was essentially talking about. He felt you actually don't really feel a lot of pressure on in your progress to getting better and to like climbing the rankings. But all of a sudden, once you hit that number one ranking or you achieve that first grand slam, suddenly the spotlight is on you and it kind of can magnify, you know, whatever insecurities you may have had before. And then obviously your desire to stay at the top. You know, I actually, this discussion uh, brings to mind another famous Canadian player, Rebecca Manorino. Do you remember her? Well, I do. Yes. Right. And, you know, she was such a promising junior. And when she broke out, broke, um, when she debuted on the WTA tour, I believe someone correct me again if I'm wrong, but she made it all the way up to the top 50 or with it inside the top 50. And she also talked publicly about her mental health struggles and, you know, walked away from the sport. And I believe only last year managed to work through, you know, her personal, you know, her personal issues and, you know, trying to get mentally stronger and tried to mount a comeback. So huge it is. It is the men- I was speaking about this with a, uh, with another friend, Ryan, whom I hit with earlier this morning. Honestly, the, the technical side of tennis can be learned. It can absolutely be learned. You know, if you've got the time, the passion, the commitment, you can learn how to hit a fucking one-handed forehand. <laughs> but the mental part in terms of like staying in the points, like even showing up to the court some days is the for, for many players, the biggest mountain to climb. So... Yeah, kudos to Rebecca and to Robin. Yeah, and I think what what was interesting about his story is that he said even in that match against Nadal and and playing sort of in his mid-20s when he was starting to build up his ranking and getting into the top 10, he never sort of felt that. But towards the end when he ended up uh, leaving the tour, he said he felt like he was playing not to lose instead of playing to win. Yeah. Um, And then as he was dealing with the issues related to his anxiety uh, he would be triggered by the actual thought of anxiety himself and that he was never going to um, as he put it um, you know what would happen if I had to live in this hell my entire life the the idea that you have to live with anxiety and obviously I live in a situation where I, I understand mental health as well as I can possibly I live with somebody who sort of deals with that and my father had has been in the hospital for that so uh, we all sort of deal with our own struggles and athletes um, you know we we admire them for their uh, success in their particular sport but we sometimes forget that they're human as well yeah I mean let can we talk a a little bit about Jeannie I mean as far as I know she hasn't said publicly that she has you know, mental health struggles. But I can only imagine that for Jeannie, if I were in her shoes, she had an, such an incredible 2014, making three of the four slam finals. You know, it is a lot of pressure on your shoulders when you, at that time, were kind of the most promising female tennis player, potentially was going to be the first Canadian woman to bring home a slam title. And then 
for it to kind of all go away. Mm-hmm. I mean, the results speak for themselves. Like the last episode, you reminded all of us that she's ranked, what, 322 in the world? Yeah, 332. And I have to correct you only because people will check us. She made two mm-hmm. 70 semifinals that year and one final, which was Wimbledon. Gotcha. And by people, you mean Bobby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay, so two semis and two, whatever. Still an incredible, like an incredible year. And um, and the fact that Jeannie is, you know, she's a very attractive woman. And, you know, she's very social on her IG and all of her platforms. She she must incessantly get 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 people on her back about like just not producing not being at the top of her game like she was in 2014 and i mean i don't i'm not i don't have any like a hundred percent i'm not a hundred percent about this conclusion but you know she does give off a bit of like a guarded like yeah that doesn't bother me i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do you know you know i'm kind of a bad girl of tennis gonna play with doubles with curios yada 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 but Maybe there's like a little girl inside that's like, fuck, I'm I had an amazing 2014. Like, I feel like I'm not living up to my potential. I think you and I, Jason, we were talking about how she is recently like giving off this vibe and energy of like a commitment back to the sport. She's playing tons of exhibitions. You know, uh, you see her training. I mean, I, I don't really see her doing a lot of like, I guess maybe it's because of COVID, but she's not doing a lot of a lot of like swimsuit, you know, Sports Illustrated kind of stuff. So there is a feeling that she's re- rededicating herself to the sport. But I think that and this is this discussion goes beyond just tennis. I think when people show their vulnerability, it relieves so much weight on your shoulders and it like releases you of the expectation that you you think other people have for you that you might end up doing better by just being honest Mm -hmm. yeah i do i mean i'm listen i'm not a psychologist but (laughs) well i just (laughs) i think that you are (laughs) you are for yourself and you are for others (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you. I I, I I wish I was a better psychologist to myself, to be honest. You mean during Wednesday's match? During, during a match, I wish I wish you could. I wish you could have heard all the nasty things that I said in my mind. <laughs> well, I hope you forgive yourself for saying those things to yourself. I do. I do forget. So I, yeah, I think what you said about Jeannie is interesting and it's interesting that you tried to bring her up because I know you're trying to get her on the show. (laughs) Well done. But, you know, I think she has gone through her own struggles. She had that year uh, at Wimbledon where she had to work her way through the qualifying. I forget if it was 2017 or 2018. I kind of think it was 2017, but Mm -hmm. we would watch, uh, we would watch her qualifying matches on the interweb and you know the media wanted to talk to her and she was not having it and then I think she got scolded because you know that's the thing that you're supposed to do you're supposed to come and talk to the media after the match so she would begrudgingly talk to the media because you know people had expectations about her she obviously I think felt a bit embarrassed that she had to try and enter Wimbledon as a qualifier having been in the final two or three years prior but Mm -hmm. uh to your point she does seem to be a bit happier i think she had some early success in 2020 she won a couple of matches at a tournament early on in the season i think in new zealand 
Hearts, mm-hmm. and uh, she's playing in in uh, a tournament next week. So we'll see how she does. Yeah, I mean, sorry, just to add another layer to the genie story. Last year's Rogers Cup to face it inevitably the first Canadian woman to bring home a Grand Slam title must have carried some pressure. You know, like, let's just call a spade a spade. When you were the darling of Canadian tennis and now you have this new girl that just woke up five minutes before in her parents' basement in Thorn, <laughs> Thorn, Thorn Hill, you know, facing her in the first round after the in- immense success that Bianca had in, in the beginning of 2019, like winning, I think she won Auckland and then... She won Miami. She won Indian she, Wells. Indian Wells. And then the Indian Rogers Wells, Cup. Then the Rogers Cup. You know, Jeannie won that first set. <laughs> and she was like, I got to do this. You know, I I don't know. I don't want to put words in her mouth. But, like, I know if it were me, that those would be the struggles that I would be dealing with playing Bianca on home turf. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you know, this wasn't on the docket. But I do want to ask you a question. We posted on our no, we didn't post on our G on our IG. I think Jay, you had posted a comment on the US. It was either the US Open Instagram page, something like you know, it was a video of Serena, and like the caption was, oh, "Serena doing a lot of damage at the US Open," and then <laughs> Jay on our on our Ready Play Tennis podcast IG. Do you do you remember what you replied? I said. But she didn't win. <laughs> yeah, and a girl came after you hard. She, she did. was, she was, she was angry with you. Yeah, you know what she said. Tell 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 everyone she said. Her post was at Ready Play Tennis Podcast, and question mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know she followed up though. To yeah, that she end. she followed up to the other other person who was shading on Serena where and I I just said to her I'm not shading on Serena I'm just just happy for our girl yeah like you I mean I she also added I think well she replied you know let's let's just let's just call it out here she almost died during pregnancy and then she made it to the finals of the US Open and I mean to your point we're not trying to shade Serena I mean I mean, I love Serena. There's things about Serena I don't love, but there's things about her I also love. But people take things so personally. Like, mm-hmm. you're not Serena's best friend, honey. Yeah. Well, you and know. it speaks to, you know, the power and feeling and emotion that we put into our favorite athletes, our favorite entertainers. Right. Um, which is sort of exactly what Robin Soderling was talking about. Yeah, I mean, you just made mention to me a couple of minutes ago about that book you were reading. Yeah, everything is fucked. Everything is fucked. You want to talk a little bit about how we view athletes and or... No, I mean, it just talked about how there's sort of different tiers of religion. And this is sort of the third tier where we, we put sort of on a pedestal athletes and entertainers and it's sort of the lowest rung of this idea of um bringing spiritual spiritualness or spirituality to you know these entertainers and athletes got it that's it um before we transition to the meat and potatoes of today's podcast let's just give a shout out to olivier 
um, formerly part of Montreal Tennis Lambda, but I believe now he lives in Ottawa because he seems to me to be an admin for the Ottawa Tennis um, gr- uh, Facebook group page. He coordinates matches in Ottawa, so he's doing his thing to bring the Ottawa tennis community together. And he had suggested that we talk about Robin and his mental health struggles on our podcast. So thank you for uh, bringing that topic to our attention. It, it actually made for a really nice kind of thematic episode today. Mm-hmm. Because we want to talk next about the piste, <laughs> the piste de resistance. <laughs> My pronunciation in French is terrible. So this is about the 25th anniversary of the return of the one, the only incomparable Monica Seles. Mm-hmm. Adversary to many, but particularly to Steffi. So we're going to talk a little bit about all things Monica today. Because today, or not today, but around this time, uh, was her return to the Pro Tour after the incident that sort of changed the trajectory of her career. Yeah. Do you uh, hear that? What? Do You don't hear that? No. You don't hear all of the gays screaming with <laughs> excitement that we're talking about Monica? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Gays, we're talking about Monica. There's something about Monica that we're going to talk about. The g- Monica, I don't know if you're if you know this, but the gays love you. They I believe that the gays love Monica so much because they see <laughs> I, I should really talk about for myself, but like, you know, I think the gays see themselves in Monica and her struggles talking about like mental health and, you know, just a roller coaster of you know of highs and lows throughout her entire career monica is such an icon to the gay community that we just want to wrap her in a big rainbow flag do you think she knows that i don't think she knows that maybe we need to monica if you're listening (laughs) come on our show we can let you know how all the gays are wrapped up in your warm embrace how they all want to replicate your two-handed forehand and backhand and sometimes your one-handed forehand that you would whip out yeah and how we all tried to imitate your grunt and get complained on during matches (laughs) i cannot tell you i think every gl (laughs) wade is gonna (laughs) he's not gonna love those ice cubes (laughs) we love you we love you wade we know that you don't like the ice cubes clanking (laughs) (laughs) um i was just gonna say every glta player has been at a tournament where they've seen a fellow glta player trying to replicate monica am i wrong here like it's there's always some player at a glta tournament who either has the grunt who either has that like really feisty powerful two-handed forehand or backhand like she's such an icon that gate gay players want to be like her Mm -hmm. i.e me yeah i mean you before you dealt with this challenge of developing your one-handed forehand you were two hands on both sides yeah i mean what just a quick little story so my dad had serious concerns that i was going to that i was gay (laughs) (laughs) serious concerns (laughs) serious concerns my dad is like a macho 
former pro basketball player in the Philippines. You know, homosexuality was not an acceptable thing in his mind for his son to be. And I, I remember when I took up an interest in a sport, he was so relieved that I took up interest in tennis because to him it was a sign that maybe I wasn't gay, that somehow, you know, gay people couldn't possibly be athletic. That was like the, you know, the image of gay people in his mind that they were just kind of like, you know, not into sports. But he said, if you're going to play this sport, you're going to hit as hard as possible. You're going to play it like a man. He's like, I want you to play like Agassi. I want you to play like, you know, like Sampras, like Lendl. And literally, we, he would be driving me to the courts to go to my lesson. And all I could think about was hitting like Monica. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, we yeah. should make this episode about you and the treatment of <laughs> your dad on you. Like, how do you how, how, how do you like tennis? So you you sound like you have some parallels between Agassi. I, oh my upbringing. god! Don't e- don't even get me started on like me reading his book open on the train in Cinque Terre and like weeping at the part when he talks about you know him not loving playing tennis, but because but it was the only thing he knew how to do, and he didn't want to disappoint his anyway. That's a tangent, but what? Well, that's for another. Honestly, no. I think we should I, we should do an Agassi episode. Yeah, but, but this one is about Monica. Yes, and yeah. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to really quickly kind of in, introduce why Monica was so important to tennis. Now, other than Hingis, who came obviously after Monica, no one really, no one else, arguably Steffi, came onto the tour and just from the moment she stepped on court, dominated the WTA from the jump. Right. So she made her debut. Um, in 1989, um, at a tournament in Houston, she lost to Chris Everett in the semifinals. And her very first French Open that year, she made it to the semifinals, lost to Graf. And one, one, one fact will just quickly and easily define her dominance. From 1990 to 1992, of the 12 slams that were available for people to win, she won eight of them. At world number one all three years and so m- no one like monica arrived on the wta tour on the tour as like an absolute phenom and no one played like her no one took the ball as early as her no one could hit clean winners off both sides with so much aggression she really like leveled up women's tennis and she set the bar higher for girls coming up to play at her level and play better to beat her. I don't think at the time I had ever seen anybody hit the ball as hard on the women's side as she did. Yeah, she um I remember Mary Carrillo, you know, during many of her matches would um comment that she would take the ball so early and she would not only hit the ball hard but she would hit these devastating angles that would open up the court that she literally she would go through draws it was it was it was funny how quickly she would just terrorize and defeat opponents like she would beat opponents in entire matches in 20 minutes like think about that 20 minutes that's crazy yeah i mean you know the first part of the her career that you are sort of talking about she had only lost 25 matches of like the 250 or so that she played and she won 30 tournaments and 
as you pointed out, eight of them were Grand Slams. Yeah, I mean, Monica, I, as everyone knows, I'm like a huge Steffi fan. I hated Monica in like the 1990 to 1993 Australian Open range because she was just the, the 16, 17-year-old girl that was taking slams away from my favorite tennis player of all time. Um, but in retrospect, after everything that she's obviously been through, like you look back and you're like, what a, what a shame. What a shame that she had to experience what she did. Mm-hmm. And what she experienced, as we all know, was being <laughs> stabbed at a tournament in Steffi's home country of Germany mm-hmm. um, in, on April 30th, 1993, which took her yeah. out of the tour for about two and a half years. Yeah, I remember um, being in elementary school and coming home. And now this is going to sound so awful. But like, you know, when I heard the news about Gunther Parch, Parch, Steffi Graf fan, stabbing her in the Hamburg tournament while she was playing Maggie Maleva, all I, 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 I'll be really honest. I, I, on, I only thought about like Steffi regaining the number one ranking. I know that's a warped and twisted and awful thought to have because like, hello, this is a human being and she's at the top of her game. And, you know, she was literally stabbed to be taken out, you know, and, but like now that I think about it and I've, and I've seen the footage and like rewatched the footage of her getting stabbed, it really did change like the landscape for how security is, um, is kind of established at tournaments. And I think for that, everyone in the tennis world can be super thankful. Thankful that she was stabbed. <laughs> I mean, thank- <laughs> thankful <laughs> that they're, they're security or they're better protected at these yeah. events as a result, yeah. unfortunately. Unfor- unfortunately. I mean, I remember everyone in the world of sports had something to say about that. I mean, Michael Jordan, I remember on TSN, I was watching the highlights that evening, t- Michael Jordan, you know, said like, this is absolutely awful. You know, he, he even felt at some of his matches that security could be beefed up. And it's true. Like, you know, think about the Olympics in 96 and all of like, you know, and the bombing. It's just like athletes can be athletes. Uh, athletes are very similar to celebrities. And obviously we know that there are people out there that are crazy fanatics and the lengths at which some fans will you know, go to to like see their players and, you know, uh, you know, do things in favor of their favorite players are just insane. And, you know, yes, Monica Sells was stabbed and it forever changed her career. But I think, you know, a positive thing that came out of that obviously was that, you know, there's heightened security at all the tournaments. Mm -hmm. And so she came back two and a half years later after obviously dealing with the recovery of that and the mental challenges that she would have been dealing with, you know, having been stabbed and and not perhaps feeling safe to get back on the court again and dealing with the anxiety of, of having had that happen to her. But she Mm -hmm. did make her return 25 years ago, probably this week at, at our fair Canadian open, which I think at the time was the Demoria classic. Yeah, I do you remember those? Do you remember those courts? Yeah, they were um, green, right? Yeah, they were like green, and then they had like the red. Like mar- was mar- it red? Yeah, maroon. Kind of 
kind of like banners everywhere. We should have a smoke in celebration. <laughs> <laughs> we should we should have a cigarette. Back when cigarette cigarette companies were sponsors for tennis tournaments. <laughs> so I have a question for you, and you I feel uh, I feel like this is a good question for you because of your love of the WTA and your love of Steffi mm-hmm. in, in, you know, during this time where she, I think she probably took over um, in terms of uh, dominating during the period where Celis was away. But when she came back, they granted her a co number one ranking, which uh, Martina Navratilova, I think advocated for her to get. And I think there was some pushback from some of the top players because that obviously impacted uh, their ranking, particularly mm-hmm. Arancha and Sabatini. But mm-hmm. what did you think about that? Or what do you think about her being given a co number one ranking? I mean, even though I'm a diehard Steffi Graf fan, I mean, the girl was stabbed. She was number one in the world. I mean, I I don't. It's a no a no brainer for me that she w- should have been given that number one ranking. It's of absolutely no fault of hers that she was stabbed and she was at the top of her game. So a hundred percent, she should have, you know, been given and she was given that number one ranking. And it seems like she was given that ranking for good reason. Yeah. Because well, what happened? You mean on her return? Yeah. I want to give you the the honor of telling everybody or refreshing everyone's memory. Okay, I will refresh people's memory of this. So I admittedly was not a huge Monica fan either. I I found her at the time, I think, a little bit boring. And I think only because she was so dominant and those, those matches of hers didn't really last very long. They were in like this era of she would beat players in sometimes in under like 45 50 minutes yeah that was an era where there was not a lot of uh there where um where women were uh, more dominant there was select women sort of like the big three now where there Mm. there was uh, this certain level of dominance in the women's game which has been lacking i think the last you know 10 or 15 years despite serena having won so much um there there's no other player like serena that exists today to be sort of a a a true sort of rival right um, in that way but uh yeah i was very excited when she was coming back because obviously it's a feel-good story and the fact that she came back um at what is now the rogers cup but came back uh, to canada as her first uh tournament and i think it was in toronto that year and the girl like dominated yeah she her first tournament back after being stabbed she freaking wins the whole thing (laughs) (laughs) she lost a total of 14 games in five matches yeah yeah and um one one interesting thing was that following the canadian open the demori open at the time she made it to the u.s open final and this no tennis writer could have written this any more you know any more um ideally her against steffi right her against steffi in the 1995 u.s open final monica you know having been stabbed by steffi graf's crazy fan and i remember vividly watching that final and mary carillo who was commentating the match said 
Steffi needs to win this match to win this slam. Otherwise, if she loses it, it means that the last two years that Monica was away from the sport would have really meant nothing. And I think we're going to get a little bit into that debate. But as we all know, Steffi ended up winning that match in three sets. Um, and, you know, she won, I believe, 7-6, love 6, or 1-6-6-3. Six, six, and, yeah, I mean, for Monica to come back, win the Canadian Open, then make the finals of the U.S. Open after being stabbed and sidelined for two years, like, who can do that? Like, you can, you can really see that she is a tennis anomaly. Like, she's obviously one of the best the sport has ever seen. Yeah, and it was obviously unfortunate, but to make such a comeback is pretty incredible. And I think everybody was behind her if they weren't before, and even if perhaps they were a Steffi Graf fan, uh, maybe they were behind her in this moment in some way or they had hopefully at least wanted a, a decent match in the US Open final. Yeah. I'm I, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, Celeste post stabbing and then I think we'll get a little bit into the debate of, you know, whether Graf is legitimately one of the best of all time and I want to get your take on that. But, you know, in short, Celeste only won one Grand Slam after her um, returned to the sport. She won the 96 Australian. Uh, she beat uh, Anka Huber in the final. And she only ever made one other Grand Slam final, which was the French Open final. She lost to Sanchez Vicario. She had glimpses of returning back to her, you know, pre-stabbing form. You know, she beat Vin Venus Williams at the 2002 Australian Open, lost to Hingis after playing, like, a fire first set. But, you know... Celis even admits that while she, you know, while she was sidelined after her stabbing, she developed an eating disorder. And that's all that the media ever covered, really, I think, of Celis in her return to tennis was it was always a story about her weight, you know. And I think that commentators would put it under the guise of her quote unquote fitness. But, you know, she really was struggling with her weight. And obviously, when, you know, you're a little bit bigger on the court, it's more difficult for you to get to balls. And that was Monica's strength, you know, when she was at her fittest. And it's, it is a shame. So this is the golden question of the hour. Like, what do you, like, do you think, Jay, that Celis's stabbing puts a little kind of asterisk black cloud on the whole graph being the best women's tennis player of all time argument? I think... You have to look at the facts of how Monica competed on the court as you so uh, did such a good job articulating. She could hit the ball from anywhere. She could create not only amazing angles when she was hitting two hands on both sides, but she hit with such power that players were knocked out of position and, and she could just, you know, hit a winner. She also had an amazing serve, um, which helped set up the points for her. Mm -hmm. So, and, and the fact that she won several multiple Grand Slams before she was 19, let's not forget, she was only 19. Yeah. When she was stabbed. She was 19 years old and had won already eight Grand Slams. So 
I mean, we I don't know that you or I necessarily did the research to see if anybody else uh, ever had won so many Grand Slams by that age. I mean, Bianca just won her first and she's 19. So yeah, Monica won eight and then she was taken away. And I don't know um, how many of those uh, finals or semifinals that she actually had head to head matchups with Steffi, but I do think uh, I think most people would agree that several of the Grand Slams that Steffi won, she may not have won in perhaps that 93 to 98 window if Monica had not been stabbed. Honey Bun, I can tell you. You can tell me which question are you going to answer? <laughs> I, I can... Guys, are you ready for this just like next five minutes of genius? So whilst, while Monica was stabbed, Monica was stabbed in... 93 so right before Hamburg is a tune-up for the French Open Graf ended up winning the 93 French Open she won the 93 Wimbledon she won the 93 US Open she won the 90 Graf won the 94 US uh, 94 Australian so she completed a non-calendar Grand Slam lost the semi of the 94 French Open against Pierce um, lost in the first round of the 94 Wimbledon against Laurie McNeil and then lost in the final of um, the 94 U.S. Open to Sanchez Vicario, and then 95-96, Graf won three of the four slams. So in the time that Celis was gone, Graf won three years. She won nine slams. And honestly, if you take a look at the other players that were, you know, contenders in the top five, top ten at that time, who did you have? You had Sanchez Vicario, who really had no game against Monica. Conchita Martinez, no game against Monica. You know, Mary Pierce was kind of like, she could have been a factor because she was a big hitter, but she also struggled with keeping her mental game together, which we can all, you know. And she was a sort of a late, later bloomer. She was sort of post Celis return is when she shone a bit more. Yes, Shined exactly. or shone? Good question. I don't know. <laughs> this isn't a this isn't an English podcast. It's a tennis podcast. Let's calm down. <laughs> and you know, and then Hingis came onto the scene in '97. Well, '96 is when she actually debuted on the. T no, I don't quote me on that. But '96, I know she. '97, she really made her. Um, she won her first Slam. So there's really that exact window of time when Graf won so many of her Slams. And, and Celis was sidelined. I think that Graf would, being the champion that she is, would have improved her game. That's the thing. When you have a rivalry, like my rivalry with my rivalry with Jason, makes me want to be a better player. You know, without Jason, I mean, I'd, I'd probably lose to other players. <laughs> I, I do lose <laughs> to other players, but yeah, like losing to Jason makes me want to play better. And I think that Aww. that's what's, no seriously. And that's, that's sweet. Yeah, that's I should true. keep. I should keep beating you more. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but you know, Graf needed Celeste to be a better player, and I think that Graf would have won those slams anyway. But Celeste would have definitely won a whole whack ton of slams had she not been stabbed. Yeah, I think you're making a good analogy to some of the players today. I think, you know, Federer, Nadal, 
Djokovic, they all sort of credit those what the two of the other three of them for, you know, pushing each other forward and for the slams that they have won. So they may have been thwarted in winning at other times, but it's because of those players that they became better and they were able to win as many slams as they did. Yeah. I mean, we I don't think we hear about Monica anymore. She she's sort of radio silent. She doesn't have much of a social media presence. She doesn't ha- I don't think she has an Instagram or a Facebook page where she interacts with people. So she's sort of living the quiet life now. Uh, perhaps she's living the shame of her dancing with the stars appearance. <laughs> She was booted off first, wasn't she? <laughs> I believe so. Yes, I. You know, I. I tune in when the tennis players participate in that show, but yeah, I think she was. She was not very successful at the dancing. Perhaps it was because of her injured foot in two thousand three. It was still niggling her, and she decided to join a, a dancing competition. <laughs> <laughs> it's so. It's so kind of like. I would have never expected Monica to join a Dancing with the Stars competition, but you know, that she so she joined on the heels of having retired, and I think you know what we discussed earlier, and what's so interesting about these two players that we've talked about today, um, Robin and Monica, is that they both had desires, I think, and interest to continue in the sport but ended uh, at a time when they had no plans to do so. So they sort of ended their career without knowing that they were doing it, and they just never came back on court. That, I, I mean, I guess that's the way that the story goes for some people, but, you know, you would you would imagine, I mean, I don't know if you have these dreams yourself, but, like, I think that anyone at the top of their sport or having occupied the top of their sport at some time, or, or anyone for that matter, any 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 sports person, you would want to retire on your own terms. And um, yeah, it's just it's. I, I now that we're we're talking about her, it does make me feel so sad. I mean, I I, I know that she's happy now. I mean, she didn't tell me, but <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> but I, I I mean I surmise that she's happy because you know she's married. And she she has said publicly that she has, you know, worked on her own mental health and has now developed a good relationship with food because, you know, in her book that she wrote, she talks a lot about how she would play tournaments like very famously. She played at Wimbledon, I think, in 1998, lost the first round and was like just gorging herself with like burgers. And you said she went to a pub and she ate. She ordered like five burgers. Yeah, like she just would just she's spoken about how she would use food to medicate and now she has developed such a good relationship with her food. She's conquered her, you know, her mountain of mental health issues and she's in a good space. And I think for her, clearly making a choice to not be part of the tennis world because she had been part of that world for so long is her making um, an active choice to you know to that that's probably good for her mental health maybe she can return to tennis on her, you know on again on her own terms but yeah i mean obviously she's 46 years old so she may not be competitive again <laughs> no, well, we don't I mean, actually like, see her playing but yeah i know what you mean 
Yeah, like you know, you can you can hand out a, a trophy somewhere, or yeah. you can like mentor a girl or something. I, th- I think she's done the trophy thing a couple of times at the French Open, mm-hmm. uh, as far as I know. So yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that you know Robin Soderling uh, stopped playing in 2011, had mononucleosis, developed anxiety said a couple times that he was planning to come back and never did and monica sort of did the same thing after her foot injury in 2003 um so and then she officially retired in 2008 without having played a another match before we depart from our fair monica tribute (laughs) we cannot have a monica sellis episode without talking about oh my god (laughs) i forgot how could you forget girl frick yeah. Wait, let me let me just give it a shot because I just watched her, a clip from the 92 Wimbledon semifinal against Martina <laughs> and Ma- Martina gave her that glare because yeah. she came, I, I was watching a point. She came up to the uh, she um, Martina had hit a short ball and Monica had to come up to the net and she hit sort of one of those wailing uh, backhand winners. And Martina gave her a glare after she did a. Ah-hey! Wow, pretty good. Oh, that sounded like a Monica Sella soundbite. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, I just we just dubbed it in. <laughs> <laughs> but the grunt was very. Uh, she she must have gotten away with it for at least a couple of years, but it was that 1992 Wimbledon event. Uh, a tournament that she was never able to conquer, by the way, where she was first called out on the grunting. You know, you know why Tozia and Navratilova complained about the grunting, right? Like the specific, do you know their specific reason? Because they were getting <laughs> killed on the court. <laughs> I mean, that's probably the real reason why they're getting killed. On, th- that's probably the real reason. But um, at the time, uh, Martina claimed that when someone grunts so loud at the same time the ball is struck, part of you know a tennis player's arsenal is judging the sound off the racket. And so based on the sound that the rack uh, sorry, based on the sound that the ball makes off the racket, you're, you can gauge kind of where the ball is going to land and it helps with your spatial understanding of, of where the ball is. And so, Martina said publicly that, you know, when a girl grunts that loud, you really kind of can't guess where the ball is going to like you you obviously know where the ball is going to land, but it hearing the sound helps you. But l- let's just face it, that that girl Monica was just cleaning cleaning up shop. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I watched that clip and I think that's a good point because you know, when the ball comes off the racket, the sound that the ball makes off the racket can indicate, uh, you know, even how fast the ball might be coming back to you. So I do think I do sort of agree with that now that you say that. But when when I watched that clip, I was like, this doesn't really seem like anything because, you know, so (laughs) many women now, and I think even the men, uh, you know, Nadal included, uh, do, you know, grunt in a similar way. Perhaps hers was um, a bit more visceral and a bit 
more aggressive mm-hmm. um, for perhaps for the times. But yeah, it it seems it seems like you know she's just whimpering now because everybody does it. Yeah, like I mean, tennis is competitive. You're gonna find any any possible way to have an advantage over the other player. And I guess Martina feeling like it was the end of her career, you know, her her last best shot at winning her favorite tournament. She's gonna go up to the ump- umpire and be like, "You gotta stop this girl from grunting because I need to win my what eleventh Wimbledon singles title." Mm-hmm. So yeah, but did she take the title that year, Martina? Yeah. No, that was 92. So Martina lost to Monica. Okay, interesting. As we wrap up our show. She, she, did she lose to Monica in the semi? She lost to Monica in the semi. I should have researched the, that. In the final, uh, she played Steffi. And for the first probably five or six games, Monica didn't. Monica did not grunt, did not say a peep while she was hitting her shots. And... And only at the end, I believe, toward the end of the first set, did Monica feel more comfortable in grunting. But Steffi whooped her butt 6-2-6-1. And that just goes to show you, like, Monica being her authentic self on the court is a grunter. And when you take that away from her, it's not who she is, and therefore she can't play her best tennis. And so that even that title is in question because, you know... Yeah, it's funny that you say that because the clip that I saw, Dick Enberg, may he actually rest in peace, <laughs> was <laughs> was saying, uh, sorry, you have to listen to an earlier episode to get that joke. Uh, he, he said, you know, beca- because there was the part of the clip was uh, Martina complaining, the uh, umpire calling Monica to the chair, expressing Martina's complaint, her continuing to play again and dick enberg sort of analyzing this and said you know is monica like samson is that that's the biblical biblical reference if do you take if you like do you take away the hair you take away the strength you take away the grunt you take away the the good play and that's sort of what you just said which was you know she didn't make a peep in that final and she got trounced at least through the first set and maybe the grunting picked up in the second set but it was too late it was too late too late but it's never anyway, too late to talk about monica we love monica we love you honey bun yeah come back to us monica if you're listening come on our show yeah be the fir- be the first player to come on our show and discuss we'll talk about all the things that you love mm-hmm. we'll talk about your dogs two hands. your yes your dogs all your the money book. Th- your book all the money that your rich husband has <laughs> <laughs> All the money you want on the tour. Yes, all the money that you have. And we won't focus on the fact that you may have won more Grand Slams than Steffi. Yeah, I mean, if you're at a place where you can talk about that, we'll get into it. But only what you're comfortable discussing. That's it. (laughs) That's it. That's it for this week, y'all. What a, you know what, shout out. You know, I'm glad, Jason, thank you for putting this episode together. It was really lovely to talk about this thread of mental health. I know that there's so many people that are, you know, dealing with it, especially during this time of quarantine and COVID, that I, it's very important to talk about. And, you know, it sounds, it is cliche, but the more that we discuss it, the more that we talk about it in the open, the less of a burden that people feel, and they have more power and strength 
to understand and know that other people are dealing with it and they're not alone, truthfully. Agreed. And, you know, it seemed it just seems so fitting because, you know, we often review and and acknowledge and critique returns to the sport and returns to tennis. And I think that, you know, someone's like Monica, where she had come back from a stabbing and was able to, you know, be successful in the way that she was, was incredible. And it's the 25th anniversary of that happening. So kudos to her. So on that note, if um, anyone out there would like to share, you know, any tennis struggles, mental health struggles as it pertains to the sport, we love to hear what you guys have to say. Um, You can reach us at readyplaytennispodcast at gmail.com. Or if you haven't already, follow us on IG and send us your stories by uh, sliding into our DMs. Yeah, that's a great idea. I think we need to keep this conversation going because it's important. We all struggle on the court and we all pick ourselves up and get back on the court because we love it so much. So let's keep that conversation going. And on that note, peace out. Bye. Hey, it's your serve. If you love this episode, be sure to give us a five-star review. And don't forget to share it with others and let them know what all the racket's about. See what I did there? And don't forget, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ready Play Tennis Podcast. See ya!